0: My name is Steve Marshman. For those of you who don't know me, I fill in occasionally and it just so happens, uh, it happened to be a snow, snow day, but uh, we're recording this for your benefit so that we can continue in the word. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter four, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And as you do, I'm going to open up another quick word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for today. Because today, when we woke up, Your mercies were new again. We thank you for that. We ask you to fill up our mind, our soul, our spirit with everything we can hear and learn about you so that we can give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jose asked me to give a little introduction because many of you don't know who I am. And my name is Steve Marshman. When the church was planted, I believe it's 12 years ago on Easter, uh, I was one of the elders that helped Planted church and i served about eight years uh, before stepping down from that team and there's very capable men still serving in that role and uh, we are excited my wife and i are very excited to be part of this church because we've been married 40 years we have two kids and six grandchildren so we need the help of a church so uh, let's start by just talking about a little bit about my childhood when i grew up my dad Used to, and he wasn't a church-going Christian guy when I grew up. My dad used to always say this, only two things are certain. Only, only two things in life are certain, death and taxes. And I wish I knew my Bible better back then because I would have been able to say, Dad, you know, the Bible says it different. This is what the Bible says, Dad. People are destined to die once. You got that part, right? But after that, to face judgment, That comes out of Hebrews 9.27, and and my dad would have probably said, I'll take the taxes over judgment, thank you very much. Uh, But when you hear the word judgment, are, are you thinking that's a good thing? Probably not, because in our society, it's kind of a negative word. But in the early church and through millennium, That's how the church thought of judgment, as a good thing, it's a glorious day for believers. One day, Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge everyone. And we know this was viewed that way as a positive because the very, very early creeds, the Apostles' Creed says this, these are some gloriously positive words, and it'd be weird if I added this phrase at the end that wasn't positive. The, the Apostles' Creed says, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And today we hear that and we go, well, that, how did that get stuck in there? The Nicene Creed is very, very similar, but actually adds a little bit. It says, he will come again in glory. So that's a positive. Jesus will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So judgment is a positive when we think of it in terms of Jesus coming back to judge us. But in our culture today, people love to talk about justice, but we don't hear much about judgment. People want justice without the judgment, but that's not the way it works. The true sustainable justice requires judgment. Fortunately, our Lord is the judge and he's the righteous judge. He's perfect, he's loving. So when you have the righteous judge judging, it's a good thing because our judge, God, Jesus, is is full of grace. So we know the judgment is gonna be correct. Now, our future judgment is a mega theme in the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures and it's, it's a positive if you're a believer, if you follow Jesus, and it's a warning if you're an unbeliever. So what's happening in the last couple weeks, been walking through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and today is all about one word. If you're a note taker, write down this one word. Perspective, perspective. Last week, Jose talked about growth, and he said that our primary goal is to, we should make growth our primary goal in following Jesus. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a letter to Christians, like most of you, and the folks, the few folks are here, we're Christians. This is a, a letter targeted to Christians, followers of Jesus, but there was something amiss amongst these Christians. They needed to adjust their perspective on how to live as a disciple so today is going to be about perspective and the question is do we need to change our perspective and that's just an honest question we should ask ourselves is our perspective off and today's verses we're going to cover all the way from verse 1 down to 14 and the road map is we're going to do it in two chunks the first five verses are the first chunk And that's perspective on judgment, which we've already started talking about, and then Paul will transition to another subject in verses six to 14. So let's read 1 Corinthians four, verse one through five. 1 Corinthians four, verses one through five. I'm reading out of the NIV, and you could read along with me or just listen. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Verse five is key, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So Paul starts in verse one, and he uses two words to describe leaders. The first one is servants. The second one is entrusted. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard that church leadership is all about service, servants, no surprise there. Entrusted means that those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So a leader needs to be entrusted with things. Verse 2 is probably the simplest verse in the whole passage. And I always like the simple ones. It says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Well, the theological answer to that is, duh, right? If you're entrusted with these things, you better be faithful with them. Anyone God entrusts should be faithful. So there's really nothing new in verses one and two, but when we get to verses three, Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So what is Paul actually trying to say here? We have to stop and think a little bit. One of the things that's going on, and we can get this from the previous parts of the letter and... And, and, and the letter following is that most likely the people in the Corinthian church were viewing Apollos and Cephas, or Peter. Apollos and Peter, they were being viewed as better leaders than Paul, or better teachers than Paul, or better whatever than Paul. So people, and maybe they just liked them more. We don't really know, but they were viewed as better in some way. And Paul says he doesn't care. Now, he's not using this as an excuse to be lazy or to not work hard or to be an annoying person. He's just saying, I don't care, because he knows he needs to seek excellence and approval from the Lord, not approval from humans. Paul says he cares about how the Lord evaluates him, how the Lord judges him. And when Paul says clear conscience and it doesn't mean I'm innocent, what Paul is saying is, is I have nothing to hide. In, in our language today, we would say he's an open book. Everything about him you can just see. Now verse five, I told you, that's a, that's a key verse. I'm gonna read it again. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul's instruction here is pretty clear. He says, don't judge now judge nothing before the appointed time. And for most of us, that's a change in perspective, me included, but we have to be super careful here. We don't wanna look at just these scriptures and come up with a bad interpretation. We need to look at all the scriptures in the Bible and and judging is, is talked about often. In fact, the very next chapter, in chapter five, Paul will say this, are you not to judge those inside the church? because there's some pretty nasty stuff going on inside the church and Paul was addressing it. Or Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard these words. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And then he goes on to say, first, take the plank out of your own eye, implying that after you take care of your own affairs, there is a time to actually evaluate and judge. Or in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches us how to go to a brother or sister when they sin, and how to correctly point out fault, and there's a methodology to that, and the whole goal is restoration. So it's not that we should never, ever judge, it's that here in this letter, Paul is talking about a specific type of judgment, and he's trying to change the Corinthians' perspective and to focus on the future second coming of Jesus' judgment. So I have a quote here from Gordon Fee for you, it'll be up on the slide, it says this. The kind of judgments that must cease are those they, which is the Corinthians, are currently making about Paul and his ministry, judgments that reflect their lack of genuine eschatological perspective, that's when Jesus returns, such judgments are before the appointed time. And the way we know that is Paul says, wait until the Lord comes. That's what Paul's saying. Don't judge now, wait until the Lord comes. Comes, And that's really good advice advice for the Corinthian church, and it's really good advice for us and for our church. As Gordon Fee says, we need to have a long-term perspective. He uses the fancy word eschatological, but all he's talking about is when Jesus returns. That's in the future sometime, we don't know when. So I wanna drill down on that just a little bit because I think it's super, super important. When will the Lord return? Lots of people try to guess, but we don't know. But we do know this, know this, Jesus will return on what's called the day of the Lord. And it's an unknown future date. Despite all the predictions you hear, we don't know. And he will expose the motive of our hearts, says Paul. He will bring praise, which is sometimes called rewards in the Bible at that time. Jose alluded to that last week in last week's message when he talked about the quality of work being gold, silver, or costly stones versus wood, hay, or straw. We don't have time to get into the whole rewards thing today, but we do want to emphasize and get really, really down to earth on this question. How do we live today, January 2024, how do we live today in light of this coming judgment day of the Lord? What's your view on how that's gonna go down and how do you think about it and how does it it affect our lives today? And you've got some options. You could be scared. You might just be scared about the day of judgment. You might be in an avoidance mode, just push it out, stick your head in the sand, so to speak. And you're asking, I don't even know if this is gonna be a good day or a bad day. Well, how do we live today in light of that future judgment? I think we wanna live confidently, and this is super important. And the reason why I think it's super important is because there's a lot of questions we can ask that are kind of hypothetical. Here's one that comes to mind is the question, what would Jesus be like if he was married? Well, we don't know because Jesus wasn't married, so that's a hypothetical, and all the answers are just conjecture. But we could ask this question, What's it gonna be like on the day of the Lord when we face judgment? That's not a hypothetical. It's going to happen. You and I, one day in our future, 100% will face judgment on the day of the Lord. Now, one of the best places to understand how that's gonna go down is Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus himself himself describes this return. He says he's gonna separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep will be blessed by God the Father and receive an incredible inheritance, which is eternal life in the kingdom with Jesus forever. And we call these sheep saved ones. And the goats, unfortunately, they join the devil and his angels or demons in the eternal fire. And we call the goats lost ones. This is so important. I want you to actually see the scripture. So put it, I put a slide together. It's a long passage. These are just the summary snippets so you can read with your own eyes and listen to what, I, what I'm saying as I say it. Jesus talking here. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory, Jesus is talking about himself. When Jesus comes in his glory, it's gonna be a glorious day. He will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd, so it's a metaphor, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And we need to slow down here and notice what is the purpose of this judgment day? What is the purpose? It's not not to determine who is saved and who is lost. Evidently, that's already been determined. The purpose of the day of judgment is to separate. The day of judgment is about separation, sheep from goats. This is absolutely key, because we don't need to live in fear, wondering, am I gonna measure up on judgment day? That is not a good way to live. We wanna live with the confidence that on judgment day, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's gonna say, come sheep, join me, you'll be blessed. But today, we live together, sheep and goats, right? We also see this in Matthew 13, we're not gonna go there, but it's a it's a parable about the wheat versus the weeds, and it's the same type of ending. On judgment day, we're separated. Sheep, goats, wheat, weeds. Good and evil are going to be separated on the day of judgment. One of the... Uh, fascinating ways to think of this is from a, a theologian that I love. His name is Jack Cottrell. He says this, the omniscient God does not need a final examine of each person's records in order to make such a decision. Even before we die, that's you and me, believers in a sense are already judged. It will be made perfectly plain that the only reason we are saved for eternity is because of God's infinite grace and mercy. You see, in Jesus' metaphor, when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we join the sheep. Other parts of the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation, says when we believe, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Lamb is representative of Jesus. Jesus has a book of life. And when we believe in him, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We join the family of God at that point. And why? It's because of God's grace and mercy. It's not our merit. We don't earn our way into God's kingdom. One thing is crystal, crystal clear in this passage, in Matthew 25 and Matthew 13 and Revelation, judgment day is a very, very positive good day for the sheep. And unfortunately, it's a bad day for the goats. And some of you listening might not like that especially if you're not confident that you're one of the sheep. But let me just ask you a few rhetorical questions and everybody's gonna have the same answer to these, but it might be helpful to put some perspective on how do we look at the day of judgment. I've got six grandchildren now, so one of the things that's on my mind is school shootings. Do you want school shootings to stop? How about the Russian-Ukrainian war? Do you want that to end? the Palestinian-Israeli war. Do you want that to end? How about the persecution of Christians all over the world, which is rampant today. We don't hear about it much in the United States, but it's rampant. What we do know a lot about is poverty and sex trafficking. Do you want that to end? How about, this is an election year, This would be a good thing to end. Political lies, corruptions, and scandals. We want that to end. We want terrorism to end. We want racism to end. We want cancer to end. It's sad, but we could go on for hours listing the evils of this world. Evils from the kingdom of darkness, the Satan, the devil, but also evil from humans. Because let's face it, humans don't have the best track record when it comes to good versus evil. It was a New York Times article that said, in the past 3,400 years, which I was impressed they went back that far, because I think that's about Abraham's time, humans have only been at peace 8% of the time. That's it. So that means 92% of the time, humans are literally killing each other. That's the power of evil. In the 20th century alone, 108 million people were killed in wars. So the question is, how will all of this evil ever end? Or maybe better question is, when will all this evil end? Well, for all evil to be eradicated, there needs to be a perfect judgment. God must come, he must judge, and what he does is he separates good from the evil. And one of the things that's wonderful about the way this story ends is evil, the kingdom of evil comes to an end, it stops. It's eradicated, but as the Nicene Creed says, God's kingdom will have no end. This is really, really good news for us, and this is how we should live today in light of God's future judgment. That's the correct perspective we should have, not whether or not the Corinthians preferred Paul's view over Apollos or Peter. In light of what I just said, doesn't that seem kind of petty? is not it seem kind of minimal to think about, oh, we think, Paul, you're not as good a leader as Apollos or Peter. You don't teach as well. In in light of the the eternal judgment, that just seems small. Or, Or what about our view of Jose's leadership over whoever? Doesn't that seem minimal? If you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus and placed your faith in him, then we can be confident that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and live with God in his kingdom forever and ever. So Paul starts this passage with a punch, but there's a lot of meaning behind what he says. And then he moves on to the second part of this passage, verses uh, six through 14, and I'm gonna read them. And I'll warn you, this, this passage is a little bit challenging and I'll I'll, I'll help you along as we go a little bit. He starts out with no, I'm sorry, not no, now. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you do not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And then Paul's tone gets very, very sarcastic here. So you should listen to this as sarcasm because that's what it is. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us, how I wish you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display. And listen to this list of displays. At the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena, we, the apostles, have been made a spectacle of the whole universe to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you, you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated. We're homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you. And Jose is gonna pick up there in a couple weeks. So the problem that the Corinthians have is that they were getting puffed up, which is Bible speak for prideful. The Corinthians were full of pride and their pride came in two forms. The first one is they were prideful in who they followed. They, they took pride in the fact that they followed Peter or Apollos over Paul. And they, they completely missed the point because they're supposed to be following Jesus. The second thing they were prideful about is they were thinking that they were better than other Christians, even, other, uh, even better than the apostles. Uh, they, they didn't have lots of churches around, but in our context, you know, we could think, well, how are we thinking of ourselves relative to other Christians? So we have to bring that to our town, our day, because pride can be super subtle. It just creeps in. It's insidious. And here's a way to ask this. Why do you go to 26 West Church? I mean, seriously, why do you go? Is it because you love Jose? Or is it because you love Jesus? I've actually asked somebody the other day that I met, he said he goes to church, and I said, what do you go to church? And he said, I go to fill in the blank of the pastor's names, church. And then he caught himself, I'm not supposed to say that, I'm supposed to say the name of the church. So the pastor has been teaching his people that you don't come to the church for the lead pastor, you come to the church to follow Jesus. Or why do you come to 26 West? Do you think it's because we're better than other churches? Or are we just different? Pride sneaks in. So we're gonna get practical again because self-examination is super helpful in the life of a disciple. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's the one that's gonna uncover pride. Ask, literally ask the Holy Spirit as we get to the end of the gathering when John's gonna lead us in another worship song, we're gonna take communion. Ask the Holy Spirit, am I prideful in any way? And I have to say, myself included, all of us should be able to say, yes, in this way, I'm prideful. Because almost everybody I know that's that's candid and honest can say, yeah, I struggle with pride in my life. One of the things I love about 26 West is that the pastors are all very, very transparent and share their sins of pride when it happens. But pride is a subtle sin. So Paul helps us out in verse, Seven with three rhetorical questions and they're a little bit tricky depending on how you read them but I'm gonna give the questions that Paul asks and also the answer. Who makes you so superior? That's another translation that says it simply. Who makes you so superior? The answer is nobody. Now we are made in the image of God so we're good in that regard because God made us. He's a good creation and we, we do have the image of God but we're not superior to anybody. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing, everything comes from God ultimately. And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And the answer is, I don't have a good reason for that. So what Paul's doing is it's appealing to the Corinthians logic and in their culture, logic was a very, very high value. And he's trying to teach them that there's simply no good reason for them to be prideful. And there's no good reason for us to be prideful because God's grace is the answer to anything we might get puffed up for. See, when we look at ourselves, we could be prideful about a whole bunch of things. Our status, our title, our wealth, our education, our wisdom, who you know, or your connections. But Paul's saying none of that is a reason to be prideful. Now, if you have some of those things, if you have an education and you have wisdom, those are good things, but they're not a reason to be prideful, they're a reason to be grateful. Grateful that God has poured out his grace on us and allowed us to pursue life in that manner. And then I said, verse eight, Paul just dramatically shifts tone to sarcasm. A uh, commentator, Craig Blomberg says that this part of the passage is dripping with irony and sarcasm. Paul sarcastically says, you have all you want. Today we might say, you've arrived. You've made it, you're successful. See, Paul is showing the Corinthians how arrogant they have become. And you probably have realized this in your life that arrogance and pride are kind of two sides of the same coin. The passage uh, that Jose is gonna pick up on talks a little bit about arrogance, so you'll get more on that. But we should definitely strive for excellence, but working hard for the Lord, not working hard for human approval. We know in our human life, in our work, that excellence without humility breeds pride and arrogance. Excellence without humility breeds pride and arrogance. So when we strive to do excellent things for the Lord, we need to remain humble and realize it's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in us that allows that. So like I said, pride and arrogance, it affects everyone here, everybody listening, it, it just does. So verses nine to 13 are this crazy unit where Paul goes out on a limb and he lists this dramatic contrast between the life of an apostle and the very comfortable life of the Corinthians. And here in America, a lot of us have a comfortable life. So we should look at this list, because it's kind of amazing to show that the comfortable life is not an indication of a mature Christian. So let's look at this list. It's just a laundry list. I put all the negatives together. Paul says that uh, that the apostles are condemned to die in the arena. They're made a spectacle, fools, weak, dishonored, hungry and thirsty, rags, brutalized, homeless, persecuted, slandered, scum of the earth, garbage of the world. And everybody says, sign me up, I'm in. I mean, who signs up for that, right? But that's the reality of a life of a disciple. But to be clear, please hear this. Paul is not saying go out and seek persecution. That would be weird. There's many times where Paul avoided persecution. Jesus avoided some confrontation from time to time. but. He's not instructing us to go out and seek persecution or, or to put us in a place purposely where we're gonna suffer. That's not taught in the New Testament anywhere, but Paul is teaching what he is teaching and showing us by this amazingly uh, contrast and comparison between the life of the Corinthians and the life of a Apostle, that sooner or later, sooner or later, a faithful follower of Jesus is going to face opposition. You, you just are. You're gonna face opposition and probably some hostility from non-believers and probably some type of suffering because the disciples don't have all they want. The Christians, I'm sorry, the Corinthians, Paul says, you have all you want sarcastically, but obviously the apostles don't. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. like. That, that's crazy talk, Jesus, why are you saying that? Well, he's, he answers, he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Notice what Jesus does there in that short little uh, couple of verses. He's changing our perspective and connects our future reward in heaven on the day of judgment with today's life of a disciple, which is sometime full of insults and persecution and people lying about us. That's exactly what Paul's doing right here. He's saying in light of what he said in the first five verses, keep your eye on the day of judgment, but also know that your life as a disciple might be challenged at times. (laughs) Craig Blomberg says it this way. He says, in short, where the Corinthians think that their relative prosperous conditions reflect God's blessing, Paul points to his sufferings for the sake of the gospel as a more accurate measurement of Christian faithfulness. Now, if you're listening today and you're feeling guilty that you have not suffered for the sake of the gospel yet, please, please, please hear Paul's next line in verse 14, the first half of 14, he's saying, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. If you have not had a tough life, if your life is circumstantially good right now, you haven't suffered, you haven't been persecuted, should get on your knees and say, Thank you, God, but if you are being persecuted or suffering in some ways right now, you should also get on your knees and say, thank you, God, you found me worthy to suffer for your sake. Good or bad circumstances, we can give thanks in all things but not for all things. That's the life of a true disciple. We give thanks in all things, good or bad, knowing that the future is very, Very good, and and that might sound foolish or naive to some people, but that is the upside down kingdom of God. That's the upside down gospel. This is the life of a disciple of Jesus that we're called to live. So let's just take a couple moments and reflect on this, and then John's gonna make his way up here, and we're gonna sing one last song, or he's gonna sing one last song, You'd be happy, I am not going to sing paul 's letter to the Christian Christians is uh, uh, paul 's letter to the Corinthians is a letter to Christians, followers of Jesus who have lost their perspective in today 's text Paul challenges, uh, challenges us directly in two different ways: one is to have the right perspective on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment in the future. Most of us will probably die before Jesus comes back, but when he comes back, our our bodies will be resurrected to a new life and we will be with Jesus. And the question is, are we scared? Are we avoiding it, not thinking about it, or are we confident? That's the better way to live. Live confidence that we're in Christ. Uh, John, you can come on up now. On the uh, last point on pride, we have to know and admit, that we're probably prideful in some way. And we wanna ask the Holy Spirit today, how have we become prideful or arrogant? And what area is that? Where, Where do we need to do business with God? And a great time to do that is during communion, because that's the center of what we do as a Christian faith. Have we taken any credit for God's gracious gifts? And then the tough question to really ask is, Are we actually prepared to suffer for Christ if he calls us to do that? And he will give you the power through the Holy Spirit to endure that. So as we go to worship, ask the Holy Spirit to uncover any areas of pride in our lives. One of the reasons we do take communion every week is to reorient our perspective, regain perspective, recenter our soul, so to speak, because our best life is not about us, It's about God, it's about Jesus. Let's pray, thank you, Jesus, that you have clearly told us that our future is bright, that if we are in you, if we're in Christ, we are sheep following the good shepherd. And one day we will spend all eternity with you, praising you every day. Lord, as we live out today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives awaiting for your return, Show us where we're prideful. Show us where we're arrogant. Show us where we've viewed others as less than ourselves, whether it be a person or a group or a church. Help us to be humble servants of you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name.